the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is a Sunday before the Feast of the Holy Cross. Starting even last night, we began a lot of hymnography with the imagery of the cross, such as, for example, the brazen serpent raised in the desert, introduced by Jesus in the third chapter of John, um, in this talk with Nicodemus, part of which is this morning's gospel. The theme is also established in today's reading from the Epistle to the Galatians, where Paul declares in chapter 6 of Galatians, Far be it from me to glory, my to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the epistle to the Colossians, Paul wrote that Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. This morning I'd like to consider with you three aspects of what Paul calls the blood of his cross. I want to consider these this morning, ultimately, as points of imperative. That is to say, not simply things that we think about and meditate on, but it's things that we do, things that affect our daily lives. First, let us consider the cross as representing the price of our redemption. Now we know that the redemption was effected through the entire event of Jesus Christ. He began redeeming us right away, nine months before he was born. He began redeeming us because he was already in possession of our humanity and was already beginning to transform that humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit and he was overshadowing he was conceived. So redemption covers the entire event of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul's emphasis lies on the cross which symbolizes the humiliation the sufferings and the death of Jesus in other words of all the things that Paul could consider with respect to our redemption he underlines the most horrible least attractive aspect of it namely the cross. Now this pattern is clear through virtually the entire scope of Paul's letters, at least beginning with Galatians, and I would put Philippians about the same time as Galatians. 
through the Corinthian literature, Romans, the past of the, the captivity epistles, Colossians and Ephesians, the pastoral letters. The reason for this emphasis, I think, is not hard to discern. Because the sufferings of Jesus were, if the expression be allowed, the hard part. These constituted the costly elements of our redemption. That arduous expense of which Paul twice said to the Corinthians, you were bought with a price. Now this emphasis is not limited to Paul. St. Peter wrote of our redemption by the precious blood of Christ. Precious is simply the adjective that goes with price. Nowadays, they tend to use the word pricey, which is a neologism that leaves me cold. The real word is precious. Peter's adjective used here, timios, means costly. Again, according to St. John, Jesus redeemed us to God by his blood, washed us from our sins in his blood. Jesus' blood was in short the price of our redemption. Now from the very beginning, Christians have been disposed to dwell in imagination, distress, and deep empathy on the thought of what Jesus endured on their behalf. In virtually all languages influenced by the gospel, the adjective precious has gradually shifted from a mercantile term to a term of affection. We don't use the word precious anymore with respect to, say, the stock market. That would have been the original meaning, at least the meaning of the Greek and Latin. When we use the, the adjective precious now, we take it into our hearts. It evokes the emotions love and gratitude. The sacred wounds on his very flesh have ever been treasured in the Christian heart because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness by whose stripes Peter goes on to quote Isaiah by whose stripes you were healed Actually, from the earliest times, I would document it even in the New Testament, but it's very explicit in the year 200. The Christian day, the Christian week, have been pinned down 
by moments of the passion. The third, sixth, and ninth hours of Christian prayer, those three hours of prayer each day, those three times of prayer, required of all Christians, the third, sixth, and ninth hours, which we already find them observing in the New Testament, as did the Jews. The third, sixth, and ninth hours are moments of the Passion. It's very clear, very clear in Tertullian about the year 200, very clear in Apologies of Rome about the same time. One thinks about, at these hours, what happened to Jesus at these hours. Likewise, the entire week is structured this way. This is why, since well into the first century, Christians have kept two fast days a week, Wednesdays and Fridays, unbroken tradition, and probably about the year 50, about the year 50, depending on how one dates the, the earlier sources, the Ur text of, of the Didache. We fast on Wednesdays because that's the day which he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. We pass fast on Fridays because that's the day when the bridegroom was taken away and Jesus said we would fast on that day. The cross teaches then what I'll call the imperative of piety. That is to say, we take the cross into our hearts and we base our piety, our prayer, our observance, centered around the cross. Second, this morning, let's consider the cross as the place of covenant, the place where God and man are reconciled. St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, of their sorry state before they became Christians. At that time he said, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, (coughs) having no hope, and without God in the world. I've never preached on that text, I have to tell you, because it has four points in it. (laughs) I don't know really how to handle that. <laughs> you know, when I was a seminarian at Southern Baptist Seminary, they never taught us how to handle four points. Without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth and strangers, the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. Paul goes on to say, same chapter, same second chapter of Ephesians, that Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Those that are, those that are near are the Jews. Those who are far off are the Irish. <laughs> and everybody in between. That long list, remember, that's given in the Acts of the Apostles, where Luke begins way over in media, and he lists all the nations and the, all the way over to Rome. Then he suddenly forgot 
he said remembers that he forgot the Arabs and the Cretans and went back and put them in too. Those are all those who were far off. Those who were near, the Jews. For through him, he says, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. There's the covenant that unites all of humanity at the cross of Christ. Now because the cross of Christ had radically reconciled us to God and initiated a covenant of reconciliation among ourselves, there could hardly be a greater affront to the cross than a refusal to be reconciled to one another. I preached about this, I think, at least a little bit for the last three Sundays. The importance, the absolute central importance of reconciliation to one another. In fact, I'm told that the week I was gone, Deacon Theophane preached on that thing. The importance of reconciliation. My brothers and sisters, let us be convinced that the path of holiness is always blazed and paved with the sustained effort of reconciliation in the body of Christ. When people join the Orthodox Church, unfortunately, the first thing they do is grab a book written by a hermit. That's one of the important, one of the <coughs> essential reasons why confession is so important. Your father confessor is supposed to keep you off of books like that for a while. You're not ready for books written by hermits. The elementary thing is to get into a congregation and live in the congregation because living in the congregation, the give and take of a congregation, it becomes a family, we hope. That's the way to holiness. That, that's the context in which we pursue holiness. Now, if you've been doing that about 50 years, then we'll give you a book by a hermit. I, I, of course, I'm using a little rhetorical license there. 45 is normally the number. <laughs> that is to say, the cross conveys a second imperative, the imperative of peacemaking. Let's go back to the second chapter of Ephesians. The imperative of peacemaking. Let us be reconciled to one another. That's the, that's the absolute essence in the Christian life, that all of us are bathed by the same blood and united by the same spirit. And finally, let us consider the cross as the place of victory. An important image of this victory introduced last night in the inaugurate, introduced this morning in the, in the third ode with the third ode? No, it was in the first ode. In the first ode this morning at Mountains. The image of the rod of Moses. The rod of Moses. This is the instrument that Moses extended over the Red Sea to open the path to deliverance for God's people. And it closed that path to the Egyptian armies. 
This is an image of the cross of our Lord, which brings us deliverance from the demonic Pharaoh. The rod of Moses symbolizes the cross of Christ. The conviction of the triumph of the cross imposes many obligations on the Christian soul. But let me suggest that among the chief of these may be those of joy and hope. In this respect, let's recall together that when the verb rejoice appears in the Bible, most particularly where it appears in the New Testament, the verb rejoice most often appears in the imperative mode. Rejoice. That's a commandment. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. When Paul wrote that, this of the Philippians, he was in prison, probably in Ephesus. He was in prison, chapter 4. You know, these Roman prisons were not really all that good. They were pretty miserable. A lot of dungeons. I've been in, I've been in ancient prisons. I'm mean, just as a visitor. <laughs> I've, been, I've been in the prison cell of Paul and Silas at Philippi, for example. You can't get in there anymore. It's all locked up. Um, but back in the old days, I mean, a real long time ago, I was able to go in and sit there in, in, that, in that prison cell with my little Greek New Testament and read Acts 16. That was no fun in there. I didn't, I didn't notice much plumbing, for example, there. It, was, it didn't look comfortable at all. I've been down to the Mamertine prison in the streets of Rome where St. Peter was imprisoned. These were not nice places. So when Paul is saying, rejoice, to whom is he speaking? Well, he seems to be speaking to the Philippians, but he's surely speaking to himself. Rejoice. Paul was persuaded that depression of spirits is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. You go you look, and look at the list of fruits of the Spirit in, in Galatians. Do you see depression in there anywhere? It must not be indulged in, depression. When we find some of the saints indulging depression, what does the Lord always tell them to do? Go get connected. Remember when Elijah goes on the mountain? I've had that experience myself. Not so much now, but I used to have a lot when I was at this period. <laughs> I'm the only one left. In fact, I remember telling God that several times. I'm all your God. <laughs> and you're lucky to have me. <clears throat> I mean, I was just like, you know, the cheese stands alone. <laughs> you ever think about that, Claire? You ever think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Poor cheese all there all by himself. The cheese stands alone. 
whenever you find yourself feeling that way, remember the cross of Christ. Remember the victory which he attained on the cross. And fight depression with everything you have. Invoke the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are charity, joy, peace, and so forth. Start with those. Charity, joy, peace. The cross of Christ obliges us to fight depression as fiercely as we would any other sin. In fact, the hermits wrote good, very well about this. I'm thinking, I'm thinking some of the, some of the, the teachings of the conferences of John Cashin, where he went around and interviewed hermits. I take that one back. You can always read Cashin. We got be, be quite confident to give you a volume of Cashin anytime in spiritual life, even if most of it in there is from hermits. Cashin has a great deal to say about this depression. Um, the Greek word for it is Akedia. Uh, the Greek notion, the, 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 the words for most nasty things are Greek. I don't know what they think about, but anyway. Akedia, the depression of spirit. The cross of Christ obliges to fight depression as fiercely as it would any other sin. Christians are generally aware that they must resist temptations through fornication, robbery, mendacity. For some obscure reason, they imagine themselves free to indulge in depression. In the Christian life, my brothers and sisters, joy requires effort. We must not let the cheese stand alone. That effort would require a constant remembrance of the infinite reasons we have for joy. And I believe that the chief weapon against this sin is prayer. Prayer. Constant prayer. If you're going to feel sad, at least feel sad about the right things. That requires the beating of the breast repeatedly and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say that five or six times without distraction and see if you are still depressed. Without distraction, see if you're still depressed. The cross conveys then, my brothers and sisters, a third imperative, the imperative of happiness. You see, after this life is over, joy and despair are the only two things left, and they're mutually exclusive. We prepare for heaven right now by letting the Holy Spirit create that heaven in our lives by the submission of our hearts and minds to his grace.